0: the schizophrenic 50s toys in 1963 college professors around the country noticed a strange ritual during each exam time sitting on the desks of understandably anxious students were tiny pudgy naked glass-eyed imps with shocks of white sheep's wool hair flared nostrils jutting ears gnomes comical in their ugliness the troll dolls originally known as Dammit Dolls after their creator, Danish woodcarver Thomas Dam, were said to bring their owners good luck. Indeed, the press had recently reported that the daredevil pilot Betty Miller had replicated Amelia Earhart's 1935 flight of 7,400 miles had as her co-pilot a troll doll. The country's first lady, Lady Bird Johnson, let it be known that she owned the troll doll. At the end of the 60s, small elves were the second best-selling doll in the country, topped only by their comely antithesis, Barbie. In the fad's early years, troll dolls were largely the heartthrob of college and high school girls who carried them as much for their impish cuteness as for their promise of good luck. As the craze spread, trolls in various sizes became the mascots of sports teams, and the gift to give if adorability was the one goal. The elf actually underwent a transformation as it passed from being Thomas' humble birthday gift to his daughter to being an icon of profitability and sentimentality. Dam's original wooden doll, for instance, was naked and embodied as close as he could carve the ugliness of the mythic forest elves of Scandinavian folklore, which served as his model. The gift caught the attention of a top Danish student toy shop owner, and soon indigent Tom, Thomas Dam, who carved the doll because he couldn't afford to buy his daughter a present, was in the toy business, convinced that elves really did bring good fortune. When Dammit dolls first arrived in the United States in the early 60s, they were faithful replicas of Dam's original, but as their popularity spread, their cuteness became increasingly more calculated. Available as adult trolls, five ninety-five; diminutive baby trolls, $1.95, They, in their nakedness, were clothed in diapers, dresses, and even formal wear. Their white hair was dyed trendy psychedelic colors, and they were accessorized with miniature props such as ironing boards and motorcycles. Eventually, they could be purchased at truck stops and greeting card shops in a stance with arms outstretched and mounting on a pedestal bearing the come on, quote, I love you this much, or forgive me. Thomas Dam's Dammit dolls had become, as Betty Davis once said in a different context, cheap sentiment. To collectors, the Dam's original are genuine; are the only genuine troll dolls, and true to their good luck, they're currently worth a hundred or so dollars apiece. Slot cars. Oh, I had slot cars. I loved slot cars. The hobby of racing plastic vehicles, called slot cars, which can achieve speeds of 600 miles an hour at scale, took the country by thundering storm in the early 60s, suggesting at the height of the craze that the slot car racing performed on platforms not unlike those set up for model trains, might surpass bowling as the nation's favorite family sport. By mid-decade, an estimated 3.5 million Americans were slot car racers, the country had more than 5,000 racing clubs and a score of slot car newsletters, and the toys were a multi million dollar industry. Adult males were reveling in a second boyhood. Slot car racing teams formed at many of the country's leading universities, including Princeton, Yale, and Penn State. And as fad goes, the mini cars drew unprecedented press when newsman Walter Cronkite admitted to being a slot car fan and Attorney General Robert Kennedy raced a model car on its slot track during dedication ceremonies of John F. Kennedy Park in Washington, D.C. Slot cars were a fad with a diverse following. The original model car racing dates from the turn of the century in England. British cars then were larger and slower than the lightweight plastic slot car versions later developed in America, which sold for $3 to $8 a model. Nearly exact replicas of racing cars, actual racing cars, the slots derived their name from the slot projection under the car's nose that was inserted into a groove or slot of the racing track. The cars were electrically powered by brushes that made contact with metal strips on the course. A handheld rheostat allowed a racer to go up the current and correspondingly with the vehicle's speed. Operating the models at high speed around hair-raising curves Required a degree of skill since a car could easily slip from its slot and careen into a wall. Aurora Plastics Corporation introduced the first tabletop racing kits around 1959, which included 2-inch cars on HO scale tracks selling for $20 to $40. By 1963, slot cars were a $100 million business, having overtaken electric trains in sales. Fans paid painstaking attention to the details of their racing cars. Many slot car buffs drilled holes in the chassis of their models to lighten a vehicle and achieve greater speeds. Whereas a platform track in one's basement was limited in size, those set up at special slot car centers offered courses more than 225 feet long, sporting figure 8s and cloverleaf track designs. You could rent an hour of track time in the 60s for about a fifty, And if you didn't own a slot car, you could rent one of those for $0.50. Cents. Occasionally, special deals were struck between slot car manufacturers and real car companies. When the Ford Mustang was introduced in 1964, Aurora released its own plastic replica, with which sales exceeded a million in 1965. It became the company's biggest selling model ever. As a nationwide craze, slot cars were derailed around 1967 by competing fads of that period. That is a hobby. Racing sports still exists. Now, in the town of West Plains that I was living in, we did not have a slot car track that you could go and race on. You had to buy, I think my parents bought me two boxes so that you could put the two sets together that would give you four cars that you could race at different times. Skateboards. To present the full evolutionary picture, roller skates date back to the 1700s. The wheeled feet being the novel idea of a Belgian musical instrument maker, Joseph Merlin. Skate boxes arrived about 50 years later with clamp-on style roller skates were attached to an orange crate, a wooden orange crate, to make a scooter. The modern phenomenon of skateboards has its root in California in the early 60s when ocean wave surfers wishing to stay fit and maintain a competitive edge while not riding frothy white crests attached skate wheels to surfboards to become asphalt surfers. The California surfing set held a monopoly on skateboards until around 1963. By then, several entrepreneurs had realized that millions of young people landlocked from coastal areas or driven from the ocean by winter weather were potential asphalt surfers. The first mass-market skateboards were about two feet long, composed of wood or hard plastic, with a track of wheels on the underside that allowed the rider to use knees and body weight to steer, recreating the surfing experience. In 1965, manufacturers sold more than $30 million worth of asphalt surfboards. The singing duo of Jan and Dean, oh I love them, I love the uh, Dead Man's Curve was my favorite, enjoyed a smash single that advised, grab your board and go sidewalk surfing with me. Another line of the million seller song popularized the phrase, asphalt athlete, get your girl and take her tandem down the street. Don't you know you're an asphalt athlete safety. From its start, it became apparent that the greatest drawback to asphalt surfing was injury by way of bruises, broken bones, and concussions. After more than a score of serious accidents and two deaths resulting from the collision of California skateboarders with California motorists, the state's medical association officially proclaimed the nascent sport a new medical menace. A few years earlier, the same group had issued a less severe warning about the fad of hula hoops. As the skateboard craze spread eastward accompanied by casualty statistics, the National Safety Council alerted parents of the frequency with which young skateboarders were colliding with trees, cars, bicyclists, and pedestrians. New Jersey, New York, Massachusetts banned skateboards from major thoroughfares, and legislation was considered that would force skateboarders to wear protective helmets. By the late 60s, it was apparent that the passion of the sport was not about to abate, and manufacturers, keeping a pulse on profit, began to design safer surfboards. A breakthrough came in 1973 with the introduction of urethane wheels. Earlier, hard wheels offered a poor traction, and a pebble could suddenly turn a high-speed rider into an airborne projectile. The new wheels, credited to California inventor Frank Nasworthy, allowed a rider to skirt corners at breakneck speeds, cut sudden sharp angles, and scale walls using centrifugal force as a booster. The use of fiberglass also made the boards lighter and more manageable, which improved safety. As skateboards moved out of toy stores and into sporting goods shops, their price rose to as much as $200. Simultaneously, a new breed of asphalt surfer emerged, one more daring in execution of stunts and willing to don a helmet, knee pads, and elbow protectors. The safety paraphernalia alone created a multi-million dollar industry. A decade after the mass market skateboards were introduced, the hobby turned sport was a half a billion dollar business. Champion skateboarders, having dreamed up stunts such as the gorilla jump or the flip kick or the coffin, executed flat on one's back, arms crisscrossed on the chest, and the one-wheeled peripheral commitment, to which one is inextricably committed once the feat is begun, had their own skateboard parks with high, arcing obstacle courses to which perform daredevil feats, scarcely to be credited. The fad of the 60s and 70s died down in the 80s, but across the nation there existed adherents of the sport who were arguing for its acceptance as an Olympic Games event. Now, I didn't use the skateboard, didn't like the the lack of control, I like doing the bicycle thing, but not the skateboard. G.I. Joe As shocking as many men find this fact, the macho military toy beloved as G.I. Joe was developed in the early 60s by Stanley Weston as a boy's substitute for the then-popular Barbie doll, which Weston believed little boys across the country were playing with secretly. Not so much for Barbie's fabulous furs and heels, but because of her all-too-adult-shaped body. Simply put, Weston felt that the only thing get guaranteed to wean boys off Barbie's breast was a war toy. Debuting in 1964's Toy Fair, the soldier G.I. Joe, then a foot-tall infantryman dressed in World War II fatigues, and accessorized with a rifle, flamethrower, demolition gear. He could also be dressed as a sailor, a marine, or a pilot, intrigued male buyers. In its first year in the market, the military doll later introduced as a series of smaller, flexible armed legs and combat figures with names like Hot Shot and Recoil, generated sales of seventeen point five million. From the numbers one would assume that the Stanley Weston license for such a fad for such later fad items as ALF, Couch, Potato, and Nintendo had grasped the dynamic of young male psyche. Weston also turned on its head the toy industry maxim that boys would not play with dolls. The original G.I. Joe made in Hong Kong was definitely a doll, a fact recognized by U.S. Customs Service when it insisted the American distributor Hasbro pay a 12% tariff on dolls, as opposed to the cheaper 6.8% duty on toys. In the minds of many, though, Hasbro turned Boy's thoughts away from sex and Barbie towards violence and Joe. The doll's appeal, admitted one Hasbro marketing executive, was violence. It was evident that the most popular G.I. Joes were the more militant ones. The Marines sold best and after him the soldier. As the Vietnam War escalated in the 60s, all war toys came under public attack, and a new edition of Benjamin Spock's Baby and the Child Care book, condemned toy guns and dolls like G.I. Joe. By 1967, toy store orders for G.I. Joe were halved and inventory piled up in Hasbro's Pawtucket, Rhode Island factory. Desperate, Hasbro redesigned Joe in 1969 as a global adventurer, hunting for lost treasure and exotic wild animals, despite the fact that the doll still bore the unmistakably military name of G.I. Joe. Its new non-war image, achieved through a change in costume and accessories, was enough to cause a a modest upswing in sales. The new G.I. Joe no longer blew the head off of a native, but offered him a handshake. Ironically, docile Joe, despite his macho G.I. sobriquet, was far too mild-mannered to please many fathers who, as a Hasbro executive lamented, grumbled that they will never let their kids play with a doll. It seemed that in the minds of many fathers, Hasbro, by stripping Joe of his bayonet, had turned a hero into a wimp. Well, now, we get to the G.I. Joe. I didn't like G.I. Joe, because you got one doll, and then you had all these other things that went with it. I was a Marx toy guy, so I bought a box of Marx toys, let's say on World War II or American Revolution, and particularly the Centennial Civil War set, where you'd get 200 or so people and all sorts of things that you could use with them and we had in our neighborhood that's what we played with all the time because you could line them up set them up shoot them down with rubber bands you could throw things at them you could do all sorts of things with them but I I never went in for GI Joe now I had a friend who had all kinds of stuff at one point was one of the largest collectors in the United States he had the Sherman tank he had all sorts of other stuff now, later on in the 70s and 80s, when G.I. Joe became smaller-figured with all kinds of ships and things like that, that, was I was kind of interested in that, although I'm very old at that time. But I bought a lot of that stuff when it was on uh, sale and then resold it years later as an, antique toys. So that's where we end up today. Now, I would also point out that on the G.I. Joe, they made an Astronaut and the astronaut came with a a mercury space capsule and i was at a garage sale one time saw it sitting out in the middle of the yard walked over to it and i said is this for sale and they said yes but that sale is not till next week we're just putting the stuff out i said what are you going to ask for it we haven't decided yet i said all right i'll tell you what i'll pay fifty dollars for it right here and they were adamant no come back next week so i came back next week i was there when they opened the door and they had a five dollar tag on it so i paid five dollars For it. Kept it for many years and then finally decided it was time to get rid of it. Sold it on eBay for $250. It was complete and in near perfect condition. So you could do all kinds of that stuff. And I I think old GI Joe stuff still brings pretty good money. Now, the source for this is Panati's Parade of Fads, Follies, and Manias, The Origins of Our Most Cherished Obsessions by Charles Panati. So I hope you enjoyed that. And as always, don't forget to come by the website, sumahistorica.com or historyaccordingtobob.com, and ask a question, leave a comment, check out our merchandise. And if you like what we're doing, please feel free to support us. Thank you very much.